namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa buddhang dhammang sankhang namatsam i would like to mention First, uh, a couple of points about last night's talk. Uh, I quoted Master Shunhua of the City of 10,000 Buddhas in California and the uh, teaching that the little ditty that I said he came out with from time to time of everything's a teaching to see what we will do, mistaking what's before our face, we have to start anew, which I thought was very good and I, I uh, expounded on. But actually, that's not what he said. It, uh, um, and, and I remembered afterwards what he said was, everything's a test to see what you will do. Mistaking what's before your face, you'll have to start anew. So I just want to make sure that I'm not misquoting uh, Master Shunwa. The other thing I want to mention tonight before talking about questions is um, the cooks. I wanted on the very first night to make a special mention of our cooks because you, you can't you can't underestimate the challenge of the kitchen. Uh, and that some of you have done it before and know what it involved. It's, a, it's not a small task. So I really want to make a, a particular point of saying thank you to our cooks. Uh, it's great. We're very grateful to have you here. And has anybody got any objections to the food so far? There's um, no objections. <laughs> but I did want to make a special mention of our gratitude to the cooks. It's a, it's an important and uh, very much appreciated uh, effort. So, um, another day of retreat, and um, I hope everybody is finding, well, I'm sure, I get the feeling that everybody is finding uh, the situation conducive and supportive. All of us bring to a situation like this different conditions. Uh, we, yeah. There's a um, tendency sometimes to consider something like Buddhist teaching or Theravadan Buddhism as, as if it's something that somebody's got all the answers for. It's like you can, you can do a Google search and come up with Theravadan Buddhism and that's it. The idea that there's one way I guess is what I, I want to refer to, that, that um, we can hear teachings from different teachers and the teachers can be very confident and perhaps understandably confident in their insights because they've practiced hard and they've realized something. And uh, the teachings are given off with enthusiasm and, and then you know, maybe you're sitting there not feeling so sure about what you're supposed to be doing and and that enthusiasm can be a little uh, intimidating. And, or if you buy into it, it can be intoxicating. You can really get off on, on somebody else's enthusiasm. And the way the teachings are sometimes presented, it does come across as if this is how you should be practicing. This is the way you should do it. And even sometimes that there's only one way, the way that I'm telling you. And so... The reason I raise it this evening is because probably most of us have come across this to some degree at some stage of practice and, and uh, I think it's worth um, bearing in mind that, that this doesn't accord with what the Buddha himself said. You know, what the Buddha himself pointed to was that you have to work it out for yourself. In fact, well, the very last things he said, you know, people have been kind of pressing the Buddha, he's on his deathbed, you know, people are pressing him for the kind of definitive answers to things and, and who's in charge now that you're dying, who you left in charge. And, and the Buddha said, I don't leave anybody in charge. I leave you the, the Dhamma and the Vinaya, the, the teachings and the, and the training. And these are what I leave you. I don't leave anybody in charge. And then the very last thing he said was, you know, you need to work out your freedom for yourselves. And I think this is important that when we pick up a training like this, we can come from a place of feeling unsure and not very, not very clear about what we're supposed to be doing. And we imagine there's some experts out there who've got the answers. 
And, well, it's, it's, uh, thankfully there are people out there who, who can help and inspire and encourage us. They've walked the path further than we have, longer than we have. But they don't have the answers for us. You know, we can only find our own answers. This is, this is terribly important. We mustn't lose, lose sight of this. That, that, uh, there are as many ways of practicing Dhamma as there are human beings. That's how many ways there are. There's not just one way. There are as many ways as there are human beings. And to find out our own way, well, that's what hopefully we're offering this opportunity to, to develop the skills so that we can feel the confidence. Uh, to not, not hope to find the confidence necessarily in out there, but to find the confidence inwardly. Now, this is not, this is not the confidence that comes from necessarily grasping at a belief or grasping at an idea. But in fact, it's the confidence, quite the opposite, it's the confidence that comes from realizing you don't have to grasp at ideas. It's okay to not know. It's a wonderful, liberating teaching. And in fact, one of the main reasons why I went to live with Ajahn Chah. I had been living in, in, in different other communities and and wherever I went, I would hear monks com- uh, comparing teachers and teachings and saying, this is the right way. You've got to develop this particular stage of practice, then that stage of practice, and, and then you've got to do this, then you've got to do that, and, and uh, measuring and comparing and judging and evaluating and whose way was best, and, and bah, he's no good, he's got it all wrong, and, and so on. You, you hear lots of this in monasteries, believe me. And then I came across some very simple translations of Ajahn Chah's teachings where he said that when you come across the point where you don't know, that's where you can learn. You learn from doubt, as I mentioned in the meditation instruction in the beginning. We can learn from not knowing, from being not sure. This is the way the... The way we've all been conditioned and programmed, it's uh, in our education and so on, and the kind of secular education, the scientific model, obviously uh, values uh, in its own way appropriately so, but perhaps it overvalues this sense of certainty that can come with information or with knowledge when we know about things. But no matter how much we know about things, all of us are going to, sooner or later in our life, come up against things we don't know. And how do we deal with that? Yeah. The mystery. Yeah. And it's, this is not just an intellectual uncertainty, but it's a, a, a deep, gut-wrenching uncertainty. What's this all about? You know, maybe it happens in our adolescence, or maybe it happens when you, a sickness maybe happens with a sense of loss. Maybe it happens later on in life. Maybe it happens in meditation as, as we apply the training and tendencies of clinging fall away and, and there's this dawning sense of uncertainty. What, what, what is this all about? Who am I anyway? Very good. Very good. We want to be ready for that state of mind and not to misperceive it. It's so easy to take it as an indictment against ourselves because of our conditioning. Uh, To say, I don't know, it's it's quite difficult, isn't it? It's a good good thing to train ourselves. I mean, if somebody asks you a question, I I still find it difficult. You know, somebody asks me, I always got an opinion on everything. Smart aleck, I'm the original smart aleck. Uh, To actually say, I don't know, is not easy uh, for reasons of our conditioning. So we can go against that. We can train ourselves to go against that, and that's a good thing. So that when in our meditation we come up against something and say, I just don't know what to do. Somebody asked a question here about, about giving. I would like to hear about the practice of generosity, and in particular how to know when to give or what to give or who to give to. Should it be in response to need or to a request, or when the heart feels open, or when I have resources to spare? What about times when I feel there is a demand being made of me 
and it seems hard to respond from a place of openness. What is a skillful thing to do? Well, uh, as I read that question, you know, there's a lot that one could say about the different uh, scenarios that are, that are presented. But uh, what I really think is the most beneficial thing to do in that situation is to be with the fact that we don't know how to respond. Because we push past that. We push past the fact that I don't know. Should I give? Should I not give? Where are we coming from if we push past that? We're coming from conditioning. We're coming from preference. We're coming from opinion that we've picked up and formulated somewhere. Where the dumb mother reality is, I don't know. I don't know. Should I give this person or should I not? Or if you're in India, you know, you've got all these beggars coming, attacking you with their various efforts. And, should I give or should I not give? And so you can try giving and then they, they hound you and harass you and they don't leave you alone. And then you grit your teeth and you don't give to anybody and then you feel guilty and... and yeah. Or charities, all the requests that you get in the mail, <clears throat> we get them all here as well. People asking for money, the endless, very reasonable, good causes, and thank goodness people are paying attention to them. Um, if you've got all these coming at you all the time, each kind of competing for your attention, for your money, how should I respond? Well, I wouldn't bypass the reality that we don't know. You know, to really take that as a practice, you know, to take that as a training. I really don't know. And this is what not knowing feels like. You know, I often do this when I'm about to give a talk, to go somewhere. You've got a whole lot of people. I mean, this situation's easy because you're all friendly and lots of questions. And if I don't know what to say, I'll just pass it over to Ajahn Nando anyway. There's a, there's a, you know, safety net here. There's a, you know. Anyway, it's not a problem here. But there are many situations I find myself in where I really don't know. You don't know the people, and they're all very expectant. They've, you know, they've made some effort to be there, and they're looking at you with this, you know, wanting. And I don't know. Can I come up with something? Can I be helpful? Well, what I can know, what I can know, what's true, what's here and now, what's real, is that I don't know. And then you got your feet on the ground again. I hope you can hear what I'm saying, because this is not just a clever idea. This is really grounding, because this is true. You know, this is a truth. This is a truth that we can go for refuge to. I don't know. And we can just stay with that. Now, if we, if we are so addicted to knowing, you know, we haven't realized how conditioned we are to always knowing, then we bypass it and we can busy ourselves with trying to know. It's the easiest thing to do. Or we can maybe be just compulsively judgmental and say, oh, I should know. You know other people's opinions, expectations of me are more important than my authenticity. Yeah. Who I am and what I am is not as important as other people's expectations. That's an easy one to fall into. But if we've trained ourselves and we're prepared here and now, whole body, mind, you know, even the feeling of like the feeling of uncertainty. Where does it feel when we feel unsure? In the guts. In the guts, maybe. Kind of, Maybe not over giving to a charity, but maybe over something else. <clears throat> Some major decisions in life that we have to make. So anyway, I wanted to raise that tonight because it, uh, on a retreat situation like this, we have a lot of time. Yeah. Sooner or later, probably all of us in some way or other, to some degree, will come across doubt. And we need to be agile enough. This is the thing, to have the agility of attention so as to not keep hammering away at what in the past has given us a feeling of being sure. We we like the feeling of certainty. Conditioned self, ego self, can't stand anything but the sense of of certainty. That's what it spends most of its time doing, trying to make ourselves feel sure about things. But awareness, truth-discerning awareness, it doesn't make a problem out of uncertainty. So in a way, when we reach the point where we're really not sure about something, 
That's a gift. Yeah. And so it's like dilemmas. When we reach a point of a dilemma or a paradox or something, you just, I just, I just don't know what to do with this. It's like you've got this side and you've got that side. Should I leave my job so that I can spend more time practicing? I'm getting on in years now and I've got enough money to live modestly. Should I leave my job and then have a situation where I can practice more and live with people who, you know, support my spiritual aspirations? Or should I work a bit longer and and if I leave work now, well, I won't get a proper pension. And, but if I do leave now, well, then, I'll, you know, I'll have more space. And, and say, so, oh, paradox, dilemma, don't know what to do. Welcome. Welcome. You know, when I can't handle it, when I can't handle something, that's a gift. You know, when I can't handle something, it may not feel like a gift. It won't feel like a gift to deluded ego. Should I stay? Should I go? Should I do this? Should I do that? Yeah. From the deluded ego perspective, it feels inconvenient, at the very least. Yeah. It can feel very threatening. It is threatening to deluded ego, because I can't handle it. But from the perspective of practice, our commitment to awareness, to clear seeing, it's a gift. It undoes me. So I would say that, uh, and I'm raising it early on in this retreat because I think it's primary, really. And, and a lot of the questions that that uh, that we ask of ourselves, they're coming from a place of uncertainty, which is fine. Uh, but sometimes we're in a too much of a hurry to bypass that feeling, and we're trying to replace it with a feeling of certainty. Whereas perhaps what we need is to become more acquainted with the fact we don't know. Because if we, if we get an answer to this question, then it's only a matter of time before we reach that same point of uncertainty again. If we're feeding on the feeling of relative certainty, if we're feeding on the feeling of, I know what I'm doing. And then when we're faced with the doubt, maybe I'm doing the wrong thing. I don't know what I'm doing. And then we get somebody to shore us up again, tell us we're doing the right thing or find an answer or whatever. Something makes us feel safe. Okay, off again. Well, it's only a matter of time before we'll reach the same point again. So uh, what I suggest is that uh, as and when we do reach these points, we're, oh, I'm not so sure. Welcome. Yeah, try and welcome it and listen to the teaching. Everything's a teaching. That's what the Theravadans say. Everything's a teaching to see what you will do, mistaking what's before your face, we have to start anew. So some of these other questions this evening. This was something that I, that I overlooked last night, the question about uh, guidelines for developing wisdom in daily life. Uh, the question started off by saying, can you describe and explain the meaning of Buddha wisdom? I don't know where this expression has come from, but sometimes people talk about Buddha nature, Buddha mind, and this is kind of, these terms are going around these days, and they, as far as I understand, they're ways of alluding to or pointing to uh, something that uh, can inspire and encourage us in our practice. Um, in traditional classical Theravadan teachings, there's no foundation for for you know, something like Buddha nature or, or Buddha mind, these things. But that doesn't mean to say that they're not valid, these concepts like Buddha wisdom. In, in traditional teachings, the, the, in Theravada, you talk about wisdom. There's two types of wisdom. There's Lokya Panya or Lokutara Panya. You know, panya being wisdom. Lokya Panya is, is mundane wisdom and Lokutara uh, Panya is uh, transcendent wisdom. And so the Buddha's wisdom was this lakuta, lakutra panya, a transcendent wisdom, a wisdom that was not tainted, was not defiled, was not um, distorted by uh, delusions. Whereas uh, lokya panya, worldly wisdom, uh, can still be you know, very uh, mundane wisdom, can still be very, very, actually very deluded. It can be basically going in the right direction. Like, for instance, it talks about the Eightfold Path. You can understand the Eightfold Path, the Buddha's teachings, 
and uh, there can be a, a lokia understanding of it, or there can be a lokuta understanding of it, there can be a mundane understanding, you basically just get the gist of it. And that's helpful, that's taking us in the right direction. Whereas the, the lokutara understanding of the Eightfold Path, the, the, the transcendent or, or realized wisdom, is, is, is transformation has taken place. So uh, I would suggest that probably the expression Buddha wisdom uh, maybe is referring to that, which is that there is a kind of um, a state of consciousness that is not just a change of opinion. Yeah. I guess in a way this is the, this is the point of the Buddha's teaching. We're not just talking about an alteration of consciousness, but a but a, a transformation of consciousness. An alteration of consciousness is what you get when you smoke weed. Yeah. It kind of momentarily adjusted. Whereas when there's sufficient accumulation of the forces of goodness or skillfulness, you know, like the Buddha talks about encouragement of cultivating restraint, cultivating concentration, cultivating insight, cultivating energy, there are these tendencies when there's a sufficient accumulation, there's a, if you like, there's a, a precipitation takes place. It's like when you've got a, a, a fluid with uh, some dissolved crystals floating around and it's okay for a while until you reach a certain concentration and then there's a crystallization takes place, a precipitation takes place and there's an actual transformation of that element. It changes its form. Yeah, so this is what the Buddha is referring to in his training, the, the possibility of an absolute transformation that takes place at the stage of what's traditionally called stream entry or sotapanna. That from that point onwards, uh, there are no more delusions regarding the issue of, of the path of practice, for instance, or the issue of self or not self, whether there's a self, whether there's not a self, which is what several of these other questions are about. Um, so the Buddha wisdom is, is not just a, a different way of thinking about things, but it's an actually a transformed consciousness. That's how I would understand what this is referring to. And that's what we're going for refuge to. We're not, you know, it's not, you know, like the age of relativism that we live in where everything's just a matter of opinion. This doesn't have any, any holding in the Buddhist teachings. There are truths. There are dhammas. There are datus, elements, things that are true, whether you like them or not. So Buddha wisdom understands these truths. They're not open to uh, opinion or speculation. Yeah. I hope that's helpful. Um, please, could you comment on the Dhammas, brackets, momentary mental and material phenomena that constitute the process of experience, close brackets, perhaps touching on their effect with the sense elements in relation to the five aggregates? I think I should have you none. I think I, th I heard a, 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 a plead to address that question from my right of here. <laughs> Whose question is this? Okay, give Trent that book, and here's one for Giorgio as well. Trent and Giorgio, um, there's a book for you to read. Um, so I think. Um, now, about that, what I would say is that, um, that uh, the stages of practice, it's helpful to understand uh, from the Buddha's wisdom perspective that there's three levels of practice. Where, what the first level he calls Pariyati Dhamma, second level is Patipati Dhamma, and the third level is Patipati Dhamma. And the first level is Pariyati Dhamma, which is about study, about basically getting... getting you're thinking up to a standard, up to in line with reality enough to be able to really, you know, it's like getting the software, getting the programs in place. You might have the hardware. We've all got the hardware. We've all got brains. We've all got bodies. You know, we've all got, you know, we're all alive. We've got the hardware. If we don't have the software, well, you know, experience comes to us and we can't process it. So Pariyati Dhamma, you know, the level of study is about getting the software installed. Sufficient software. Now, some people need really, really complicated software. Yeah. Whoever asks this question, I think, needs some really sophisticated software. And that's fine. 
you know, you need to run sophisticated software if that's what you need, I mean, if that's what you're dealing with. Like the Indians, some of the Indians, you know, you read some of the stuff that's come out of India. I mean, those guys are amazing, the questions that they came up with. Incredible. And the Buddha and his compassion and his wisdom was able to address all of them. And he did address all of them, no problem. Uh, however, not everybody's on the same level of sophistication. And so what's important is to know where we're at. How much do we need? How much theory do we need, basically? Because if we don't have enough theory, well, then the intellectual doubt gets in the way. Yeah, I, I, re I mentioned this. This is very important. We need to have enough of a conceptual framework so as to be able to process our experience in terms of Dhamma. Once we've reached that good enough level of you know, conceptual understanding of the path of practice, well, then we let go of our intellectual greed, which is what a lot of it is, just lust for knowing about things. I mean, it's just so good to know about things. You know, just, ooh, I mean, really, I mean, they think, they think the food's good here. I mean, just, you know, knowing about things can be even more delicious. But it's not nourishing. Not really. Once you've got a good enough level of understanding what we need to be doing is facing the doubt. Facing the doubt of intellectual, that comes with addiction to intellectual certainty. If we're feeding on intellectual certainty, it's guaranteed sooner or later to take us to a position of, I don't know what I'm doing, I don't know where I'm going. Excellent. That's the doorway. That's the next doorway to go through. Yeah. Now, if we, if we don't see that, then we mistake what's before our face and we have to start anew. We, we run around in circles in the same room that we're in until we come to that doorway again. And then if we ask the same question, please give me some more intellectual certainty, and, and then somebody unfortunately gives it to us. You know, then we run around in circles in the same very small room until we come to that door again, until hopefully one day you don't have anybody else to feed your intellectual greed and lust, and you just stand there in front of the door and say, oh, this door looks frightening. I really don't know what's on the other side of it. I really don't know where I'm going. I don't know what I'm doing. But, you know, there's no reason to feel that there's any real danger here. It's just a feeling. I watch the feeling and mindfully, whole body, mind, slowly walk through that door. And then you find yourself into a larger reality, very mysterious. And once you get into that larger reality, well, then all, spontaneously you find there's all sorts of light in there that you wasn't in the dark room you were just in before. You know, that's what happens when we move, we dare to move into doubt and through doubt and come out the other side. We find spontaneously new levels of understanding. So, uh, with Pariyati Dhamma, with the level of, of theory and study, yes, reach the good enough level, and then we practice. If we practice without a good enough level, well then, as Ajahn Chah used to say, it's like a, it's like a, a heart surgeon you know, operating without having studied the theory. I mean, you just wouldn't subject yourself to his knife, would you? You want the surgeon to learn a little bit about the theory before he actually starts picking up the knife. But if all doctors do is just read books about surgery, about you know, but they've never actually picked up a knife, you wouldn't want to be the first victim, would you? You know, I remember when I was learning how to do injections. I don't know, some of you might have done this. You've done your medical training. And, you know, I read about how you give an injection. You know, in the, in the buttock, you lean the, roll the guy over, and then upper outer quadrant, there it is. You know, you practice on oranges. First, you practice on oranges. You know, there's no oranges as easy. You know, yeah, no problem. Okay, give me a buttock. <laughs> and so upper outer quadrant. <laughs> sorry, sorry. You didn't give it the right amount of thrust. You've got to give it just the right. Too much thrust and boing. <laughs> you don't know the right amount of thrust until you do it. Well, it's the same with practice. The amount of energy we bring to this practice, we don't know the right amount until we do it. So we've got to let go of our intellectual longing to be sure and then apply training. Sit there in uncertainty. Whole body, mind, here and now, judgment-free awareness knows that I really don't know what the hell I'm doing. And it feels like this. And it's just so. And there's wonderful freedom in that. Yeah. And we, some, Because we've let go of something. And that's patiwaiti. That's the realization. That's the fruit of practice. That's what we're interested in. So then there's a couple of questions here. Um... 
In order to let go of the self, is it not important to begin with a robust sense of self? And will you be talking about anatta, not self? Well, a minute ago I was talking about uh, when the, the Buddha's teaching on uh, the datus or the elements or the truths that exist. And um, one of the things he said was uh, whether the Buddha existed in the world or not, there are three datus, there are three truths or three facts which exist, which are all compounded things are impermanent. Sabe Sankara Anicca. One. Two. All compounded things are dukkha. Sabe Sankara Dukkha. And three. All things, compounded and uncompounded, all phenomena, are anatta. Sabe Dhamma Anatta. And these three marks, or lakana, as it's sometimes also referred to, t-lakana, the three marks, are the classic objects of investigation uh, for all Theravada Buddhists. So the question about to let go of a sense of self, is it not important to begin with a robust sense of self and Psychotherapists sometimes uh, misunderstand the Buddha's teachings in this regard and will criticize us for demonizing the self. And indeed, it's easy to make the mistake of demonizing the self. And there are consequences for demonizing the self. But there's also consequences of idolizing the self. And this is perhaps what is more of a problem, the idealizing the self, or idolizing, sorry, not idealizing, idolizing the self, where we, we make the self into something ultimate, and even into a transcendent religious self. When traditional Buddhist scholars talk about this teaching on anatta, uh, they sometimes point to the difficulties that those of us who have grown up in a culture that believes in an ultimate self, the difficulties that we have in taking on the Buddhist teachings, whether it's coming from a Christian or Jewish or a Hindu culture where there's a lot of insistence on the nature of an ultimate self, uh, then we come across the Buddha's teaching which says there is absolutely no self. The Buddha said over and over and over again, in no way, on no level, uh, is there any ultimate substantial self. And so some of the uh, translators from other cultures have tried to read into the Buddha's teachings the idea that even the Buddha was presenting some sort of ultimate self even though he specifically said he wasn't. Uh, he did, in, other, in various places, use the word self. You know, the, the self, and, as the word non-self is anatta, the word in Pali in self is atta, or in Sanskrit, atman. And so the Buddha did use the word atta. Atahiyata no nato kohinato parosita. One self is one's own refuge. How could anybody else be your refuge? One self rightly directed is the greatest blessing. The Buddha did use the word self, but he was very clear this is a relative self. Yeah. Now, I want to emphasize that certainly as far as I'm concerned, all words are relative and are pointing towards something. Uh, the more skilled and sophisticated uh, one, one is in the use of words, uh, 
the more precise one is in the use of words, well, then um, the, the, perhaps sometimes the, the more one runs the risk of taking words too seriously, I think. There are a lot of arguments take place in the, in the, in the Buddhist world, in the Theravadan Buddhist world, about what the Buddha really meant by anatta. And my approach to it, my experience and my practice is that it is, as I said, in talking about the three characteristics or the three marks, this is, this is something to investigate. There's absolutely no point in arguing over whether there's a self or not. There's no point in arguing over whether anything's, everything's impermanent or permanent. Rather, the encouragement is to hear the teachings from the teacher with respect and then where interest is triggered to follow it. Now, I'm not sure whether it's canonical or commentarial or traditional, but it is said that, that people are, are different in, in, in where they feel attracted, whether it's going to be towards impermanence, uh, Unsatisfactoriness or not self, these three characteristics. You, know, so you, feel, you feel an affinity, basically. You go through these three things of permanence, unsatisfactoriness, not self. And one of them will seem more interesting. Now, personally, I find the anatta the most interesting. I don't know where or how or when, but it always struck me as being really fascinating. And, and so for my whole life as a monk, I've, I've, uh, this has kept coming back over and over as a theme and it's very important, very significant for me. But if it's one of the other themes, like impermanence or unsatisfactoriness, it's equally valid. And what the Buddha pointed out is that there's one truth and these are three aspects of it. It's like a gem with, with, with three faces to it. If you see one, you see all three. But there's three ways of looking at it. Like, if you like, there's three opportunities or three, three perspectives from which one can view or investigate the truth of Dhamma. So, but particularly with, with anatta, you know, the teaching, the encouragement the Buddha gave to, to recognize the fact that there is no abiding self, it's, uh, yeah, it's important to know um, what the Buddha said that, which is why I've given Nyanamoli here this, this book to give to Georgia so that uh, Georgia really knows the the theory, the pariyati level, because it's very important to know the pariyati level of, of this. You know, otherwise, we can make mistakes. But the pariyati is there, the theory is there, so, that as to, so as to you know, direct our attention. Like I said, like the, it's the software. You know, we've got the software. Well, then we, the energy goes through the software, and then we're able to process the information, the experiences we have. Is this happening to a self? Is this mine? Like if we're contemplating impermanence, well then, so is this permanent or is this impermanent? But with regards to anatta, what we contemplate is, is this happening to ourself? Is this happening to me? Or is this mine? Or who is a very, very interesting line of investigation. Maybe some experience is happening. Like maybe you're dealing with a memory. Memory seems very persistent, keeps coming back. We can stop and analyze it. You say, well, whose memory is this? Whose memory is this? Who does this memory belong to? Where you're sitting there, you, your mind is very peaceful. And you're just feeling so good about this peacefulness. You just, you just quietly ask, who is peaceful? Very interesting. Because there is a feeling, isn't there? Usually, there's a feeling of, I am peaceful. I'm having a peaceful experience. And we assume the validity of that. I, that's the problem. This is what the Buddha was pointing out. There's a, there's a problem there. We assume the validity of an I. But the truth, he said, the truth of anatta, of no I, no self, is concealed. He talked about these concealers. There are things that conceal these truths. 
And the thing that conceals the truth of anatta is apparent solidity. You know, we, we believe in the way things appear to be. Because there appears to be a solid, substantial self here, we believe in it. We get fooled by it. But as I said, if you analyze, if you slow the mind down enough, as what he's encouraging in meditation, slow the mind down, slow the process down, and we start looking and breaking things up and, and seeing, well, where is this self? Where is this substantial self? The, the thoughts keep changing, the feelings keep changing, the, the mind states keep changing, the sensations keep changing, the body keeps changing. So we, we don't just do this intellectually, but just in, in a real feeling investigation. You see. And when we slow things down, well, then we get a different perspective. We get a very different perspective. When we're running at a certain speed, then we assume the way it appears. Like when the examples that's given is, is like if you, you've got a, a torch on a, on a rope and you're flying this torch around, you know, like this, and it looks like you've got a circle, doesn't it? It's only when you slow down and you see that actually it's a, it's a torch going around, flying around. Or we've got a light bulb. It looks like a light, but actually it's not a light. It's a very rapidly occurring electrical impulse. Yeah. Or a, a plane on an aeroplane, the, the propeller on an aeroplane. looks like something's there, but it's not. It's actually blades moving very fast. It's only when it slows down that you see it. We have a totally different experience of things when we slow down. So to see through the concealer of anatta, the thing that obscures anatta for us, we need to slow down, really slow down. I remember some years ago when I was living in Devon, in the monastery in Devon, and I used to go and visit regularly the group in uh, Plymouth. Our monastery was near Axminster, and we would drive down the A303, I think it was, Summer over, we go down from Axminster to Plymouth. And uh, not didn't take very long, get down there. And I'd done it so many times and backwards and forwards. And I knew the route really well. I, kind of, I know Devon. You know. And then one year in the summer, uh, the Anagarika there, uh, Anagarika Jürgen it was, who's now Ajahn Kemasiri, uh, the abbot of the monastery in Dhammapala, Switzerland. Anagarika Jürgen, living with us there at the time. We walked from Plymouth to Axminster. I clearly didn't know Devon. I thought I knew Devon. But that's at a certain speed. At a certain speed, you get one impression. At another speed, you get a totally different experience. Well, it's like this with our minds. This is why we're encouraged with these truths, with these datu, with these lakana, these, these marks, these signs, these characteristics. To see them, we've got to really slow the mind down. Simplify our life. And then the obscura, the apparent solidity, doesn't have the same force, the same um, validity. And so when we are on a retreat like this, we're slowing down. And, and these questions, like, for instance, asking who, it, it, it works. If we're going at a certain speed, you ask the who, and it just, it's just sitting up here in the, in the mind. It's, it's just an intellectual question. It doesn't get anywhere. But when you're really slowing down, you're really peaceful, you can try it out. When you're sitting there and your mind is quiet, all the jabbering has stopped. And, you just, and then there's just a moment of awareness of, hmm, there's awareness. What happens when you ask the question, who's aware? Now, we're not asking this question to our heads. We're asking this to our whole being. And what it brings into relief is, what is almost certainly going to be there, is some subtle sense of me having the experience. And this is it in meditation. Year in, year out, peeling away these layers, like, like you peel away uh, an onion skin. You know, we, can, we have an insight, and then little by little, there's the accumulated perception of I had the insight. Comes in, kicks in. Until we remember and we investigate at that point and then we let go at that point. Letting go happens at that point. Yeah. It can be very deluding. The, the subtlety of the perception of I 
uh, can be very deluding. Yeah, like with concentration meditation, you can have amazingly interesting things happen when you concentrate the mind. Concentrate attention can get really pleasant feelings. I don't know, probably most of you have had some of these experiences in practice. And, you know, some of the intensity of joy and bliss that can come and, and the absence of hassle. You know, the world, I mean, the, the whole thing just stinks, doesn't it? I mean, you know, compared to the beauty, the beauty of a concentrated mind state. But unfortunately, that concentrated mind state, you know, if it's not associated with profound wisdom, it disappears and you just get lost in the, the stink of it all again. You know, it didn't really do us that much good at all. Yeah. But meanwhile, what we've developed is this me who had a special experience. Now we've got a, another difficult me to deal with, the spiritual me. Now he's a real pain in the neck, or she, as the case may be, a complete pain in the neck. If you've got a spiritual self that's feeding on your effort, it can be really difficult, really subtle, very devious. And so, personally, I'm quite discouraging of, of uh, too much naive, uh, goal-oriented concentration practice uh, until our awareness is so well established in here and now, whole body, mind, judgment-free, when our awareness is really well established, is that mature, that vast, that grounded, then we can intensify our focus. But up until that point, it can be, uh, yeah, it can be really, really, uh, really dangerous. And even, even investigation of anatta, of not self, we can, we can come to a, uh, a feeling of conviction, of understanding of it. But then I would say the question to ask is, who understands? Who understands anatta anyway? And what does that feel like when we ask that question? Now, this is where the question here about the uh, robust sense of self is so good. Do you think we could have some light? Do you, Kath, would you mind just turning that on? And so, thank you very much. If I'm talking too long, just start shuffling and hinting that you're getting bored and then I'll stop. But this, I, I think I'd like to say something about this question tonight because it's very relevant and, and, and I think very important in, in a number of ways, uh, particularly with regards, for instance, to this investigation of not-self, that if the conventional sense of meanness which we could use the word ego, we could use the word self-structure, we could use the word person, personality. If the conventional sense of meanness is not sufficiently well established, which can happen, which does often happen for a lot of people, perhaps more these days than ever before because of the fractured way we grow up, particularly in the uh, affluent West, uh, if this conventional sense of a self is not sufficiently well integrated, well grounded, robust enough, uh, then to investigate not self, to apply these investigations, uh, to ask these questions can bring about a disintegration of the conventional person in a very unhelpful way. Uh, and you can lose the plot, basically. Um, so it's a relevant question. It's the robustness or the relevance of a sense of self. In other words, I think what I want to say is that for the sake of this conversation, that, um, that there, is, there needs to be a good enough sense of an individual before we apply ourselves to Dhamma teachings with intensity. Uh, there needs to be a good enough sense. And for some people, that good enough sense of individuality is not there. And that needs to be understood. I and mean, I've seen it happen many times in people joining monasteries, people coming on retreat, where there's a, a damaged sense of selfhood or an undeveloped sense of selfhood. That when with the intensity of, of Dhamma practice, what happens is you, you bring about a, uh, a meltdown or you get an explosion. Uh, as I've, I've had it, seen it happen quite a number of times, and it, and it can be really disastrous, really disastrous. If somebody's 
very got a lot of faith, a lot of confidence in the Dhamma. The teachings are real, the teachings are true, and something within them, their spiritual ability recognizes the truth, validity of their teaching. They give themselves to it with great gusto and enthusiasm and focus and intensity, and they generate a lot of energy, a lot of virya. But because the personality, the character, the self-structure, the bunch of, of sankharas, those mental formations that form what we conventionally call a personality, are so distorted, imbalanced, that what happens, the distortion becomes fed by the spiritual energy that's been generated. So instead of that spiritual energy bringing about a transformation, it brings about a disintegration. And uh, this is not a small thing when it happens. It can be very unfortunate. So the, uh, the, the image that I've used many times, I think is a really great image given to me by that lovely... Uh, wonderful teacher, the late Vinod Miyokyoni, the Zen teacher who passed away earlier this year. She used to be a uh, geologist and she taught me uh, the example of when they create industrial diamonds. You've got carbon dust and intense pressure and intense heat, that carbon dust is transformed into diamonds. And those diamonds are much more valuable, much more use than a bunch of carbon dust. But, as she pointed out, if the container in which this process of transformation takes place is not really secure, not really well formed, if that container is not well formed, when you bring the intense pressure and intense heat, what you end up is a terrible mess. And it happens. It happens in laboratories, it happens in industry, and it happens on meditation retreats. So, this conventional self-structure or ego is something that sometimes Buddhists have a problem with because they, they love the Buddha's teaching on anatta so much and they maybe have some intuitive appreciation of it that then they grasp it intellectually and so then they can't take on the conventional understanding of a self and they don't want to talk about it. And I've lived in uh, situations and communities where... There have been all sorts of personality conflicts going on, all sorts of issues, authority abuse and, and unfortunate things happening where the people have absolutely refused to address these issues. And it occurred to me, and I still think I'm right, <laughs> that one of the reasons for the unwillingness to address these issues was because everybody was so busy wanting to be a soda partner. You know, And soda partners, uh, stream enters, have seen through personality belief. They don't believe in personality. They're not fooled by personality. Sakaya Ditti, you know, when you enter the stream, when you reach the point of really beginning practice, uh, there is no longer any doubt about the nature of self or not self. There's no doubt about this impression that we have of being a person. This impression we have of being a solid, substantial somebody is seen through, like a mirage. You know, when you don't know what a mirage is, you think it's water and you're thirsty and you behave towards that impression as if it is real water. Your behavior is insane from the perspective of reality. If you understand the nature of mirage, you wouldn't behave like that. But if you don't understand the nature of mirage, you behave like that. And so uh, for Petuginas, that is people who haven't seen uh, the actuality of personality belief, we behave towards this impression we have of a solid, substantial somebody as if by believing in it we're going to find some sense of fulfillment and we take ourselves too seriously. And that's, that's the predicament that most beings uh, are in and, and suffer from. However, to dismiss the relative function of this personality belief is also seriously naive and has, has unfortunate consequences. Not just that it can lead to community, unfortunate, unpleasant community dynamics. Um, it can lead to worse than that. So it is important, and I, I would agree with the, what seems to be behind this question, that, that there does need to be a sufficiently robust sense of self before we can understand not-self. Uh, how we arrive at that sufficiently robust sense of self is a big question. Uh, there's a lot of people making a lot of money out of telling people that they need therapy. And uh, I know a lot of therapists who should be in therapy. 
<laughs> because if you don't have a, a good enough sense of self, well, you feel very inadequate. I mean, it's like the attitude towards the medical profession. You know. The medical profession are the high priests of our society. Um, you know, we, we worship them because we worship our bodies, and so we worship that people can keep our bodies well. Well, when our minds are, are unhappy, well, those people that can make us happy, we are willing to pay them a lot of money. But from a Dhamma perspective, from a practice perspective, again, all we need is a good enough sense of being somebody. It is true if we come to this practice with too many, too much unfinished business, too much baggage, too much unlived life, then it's not going to work. And I've seen a good number of people lose faith, as they, not because they lack spiritual ability, but because they've got a, a deficit, they've got a debt, if you like, on another level, yeah. on the conventional self-level. And uh, what's really called for, if we find ourselves confronted with our debt on that level, is to be agile enough to turn our attention towards it. And we're not dismissing, we're not being disrespectful to our commitment to Dhamma. Now, I have heard some very impressive Buddhist teachers say that, you know, as far as Buddhism is concerned, the existence of self is a complete non-issue. Well, I would not agree with that, because you can still be a very committed a practicing Buddhist and come across aspects of your conventional self which require specific attention. You know, we need to turn towards it and look at it. And in fact, the Buddha did address these things. And when the Buddha was encouraging the practice of sila, you know, moral restraint, you know, one of the reasons for encouraging moral restraint is so that we have self-respect. And... Uh, for all sorts of reasons of uh, accumulated neurosis, many of us reach the point of, of in practice where we find that what's lacking is a good enough sense of self-respect. And we need to address that if we haven't got it. And one of the things sometimes we need to address is the level of sila. How do we conduct ourselves with body and speech? Now, we could have a really sophisticated intellectual grasp on the teachings on anatta and still be uh, falling short of the mark of what's appropriate in terms of action of body speech all over the place. And this is sometimes where it's the case that our sense of self is too robust, where we can, you know, the self is not, it's not overly transparent and, and overly lacking boundaries, it's actually too rigid. And perhaps this is the other extreme. I hope I'm making sense in this. That where the conventional sense of self, the ego, is not sufficiently permeable, uh, transparent, but it's too rigid, it's too solid, and there are very understood patterns of conditioning that bring that about, where the, the insensitivity means that we can be fooled by a feeling of certainty that comes. It may not be just a mere intellectual certainty. There can be some degree of penetration, some degree of understanding, but not full transformation. And so there are examples in the scriptures of, of monks who, who had, had tremendous, profound experiences, and yet it hadn't taken them to the level of real transformation, so there was still the deluded sense of me having the experience there. It's me having this spiritual experience, and there are plenty of examples of it in today's uh, world, the spiritual supermarket of, of uh, people around who, who really believe they've got something to sell. Well, thankfully, we have this encouragement in uh, the Buddhist teaching to uh, keep inquiring into the teaching on anatta, but we also have the encouragement to inquire in an appropriate way. You know, so all these teachings, the teaching on Vipassana, which is what we're basically talking about, is to be in the context of the teaching on the four Brahma Viharas. Metta, Karuna, Mudita, Upeka. That, that when the heart is 
soft and warm and gentle with loving kindness and with compassion and with empathetic joy, well then it tempers the risk of our falling for the delusion of me having insights. And so hopefully if we have this practice in a balanced way, then the two risks of being overly rigid or too robust in our conventional sense of self or overly transparent or not sufficiently robust in our conventional sense of self, we can recognize and we can go between the two. So I hope this evening uh, these suggestions are helpful and good enough responses to your questions and support your investigation. Thank you very much for your attention.